0: probably familiar with the a and Network Show Intervention. Raise your hand. Are you familiar with that? Anybody? The show follows uh, various people with various kinds of addiction, and then it records the family's attempt with the help of a specialist to perform uh, an intervention. I want to show you a clip of one of the people with whom the show uh, filmed a family intervention uh, a few years earlier. Watch this. There was a a moment in that clip, I'm certain you caught it, when it felt to me like Todd's mother and sister were spewing pure intolerance and hatefulness and judgmentalness toward Todd, telling him that if he continued this behavior, he was going to die. Did it feel that way to you? Feel intolerant? feel judgmental, feel hateful to you? I'm being facetious, of course. It didn't seem that way at all. There are times in life, aren't there, When the most loving thing that you can do for someone is to say the very thing that is the hardest for them to hear. Now, of course, there is a way to do that that comes off mean and and judgmental and unloving, but it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, I can't imagine two people that sounded, uh, two people that could sound more loving and more sincere and gracious than Todd's mom and sister in that clip, even though they were telling Todd the last thing that he wanted to hear. Now, I bring this up. Because in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus speaks to us about a subject that is very, very hard to talk about, and it's very, very hard for us to hear. Turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 16. Uh, Luke chapter 16 uh, in the New Testament. I'll meet you there in a moment. We're in a series on six of the parables uh, that Jesus taught called Unexpected Truth. Now, uh, He taught more than six parables. We're just looking at six of them, and as I mentioned last week, when we started the series, Jesus used parables in order to reveal spiritual truth um, through comparison with everyday things that people could understand. And then for anyone who thinks deeply about the parable, there's always some paradigm-shifting, worldview-changing, unexpected truth that is revealed. The subject at hand in this particular parable is the most difficult of all. The reality of hell. It's the most difficult of all. Now, two comments before we get into this parable. First, I suspect that some of you, because of your background, have a difficult, a difficult time believing that any conversation about hell could come out of a heart of love. You've been exposed to fear mongers who were brutal in their teaching about hell, trying to scare people into a relationship with Christ. But that never, ever works. Hear me on this. You cannot scare people into love for Jesus Christ. That's impossible. And love is what Jesus is after. He said himself, two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and your soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. So just because people in your past have talked about hell to create fear doesn't mean that Jesus cannot talk about hell out of a heart of love. In fact, let me just tell you from the outset, here is Jesus' disposition toward hell. One, hell is very much a reality. And two, the only way that you're ever going to get there is over his dead body. Now that's how deeply he loves you. Enough to tell you the truth. And enough to die for you. Now, the second thing that I want to say before we look at this passage is that I suspect for others of you, it is difficult to believe that of all people, Jesus talks about hell. Because your perception of Jesus has largely been formed by your friends, by television, media. You think of him as a nice, inoffensive, wise, politically correct religious leader who's accepting of everyone and everything. In fact, though, Jesus talks more about hell than any of the, of, of the other writers or characters in the Bible. Does that surprise you? I would suggest to you that no one gets crucified for being nice and inoffensive and politically correct, uh, correct and accepting everyone and everything. Jesus was crucified because he told the truth, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the truth seemed so painful that we strung him up and killed him. We literally killed the messenger. Now, I want to look at what Jesus has to say in this passage. So let's start reading. We'll start reading. Uh, We'll read most of it uh, first, and then we'll catch the last part of it in just a few minutes. But let's start reading the passage at verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man... Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over there, uh, from there uh, to us. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Right away, Jesus draws a very startling contrast between the two men in this parable. Did you see it? Did you see the contrast? On the surface, I think, well, you probably think, well, the contrast is a rich man and a poor man. But it's not the economic contrast that is really the main point of this parable, the startling contrast, because Jesus isn't teaching that it's wrong to be rich. There are many wealthy, rich people in the Bible who are also very godly. Not anything Jesus isn't teaching here that it's wrong to be rich. No, the startling contrast in this particular parable is that there's one man that has a name and another that doesn't have a name. Did you notice that? There was a rich man and then there was a man named Lazarus. Now here's the point that Jesus wants us to understand. You might make note of this and then I'm going to explain it to you in just a moment. But here's the point. Who or what you worship Who or what you worship defines your identity in this life and in the life to come. Who or what you worship defines your identity in this life and in the life to come. It's no coincidence that Jesus chooses the name Lazarus for this character. There are actually two reasons why Jesus chooses the name Lazarus. We'll talk about one of them later. But for now, you just need to understand that Jesus wants us to understand something about this man. The name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my salvation. In other words, Jesus wants us to understand that this man is a worshiper of God. On the other hand, though, the rich man... The rich man's help, the rich man's salvation, is his wealth. Now, How do we know that? Well, notice what Abraham says to the rich man in verse 25. He says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now, there's a very subtle distinction between how Abraham speaks to the rich man about what happened in his life and how he speaks to about what happened to Lazarus in his life. Did you notice? Did you catch the little subtle distinction? He says to the rich man, he says, in your lifetime, you received your good things. But he doesn't come back and say, while well, Lazarus received his bad things. He doesn't say his. He says your when it, re- when it refers to the rich man, but he doesn't say his when he refers to Lazarus. Why? Why doesn't he do that? Why? Why? Well, it's... It's because poverty is universally a bad thing, right? I mean, poverty is, it's not just Lazarus' bad thing. Poverty is a scourge on the earth. The fact that there are some people who, who don't have enough to eat, don't have a roof over there. Poverty is a terrible thing. It's a scourge for everybody on the planet. It is humanity's bad thing. But when Abraham says to the rich man, you received your good things, Jesus is telling us, that wealth was this man's good thing. In other words, it's how he defined good, how he defined himself, how he defined his identity. It was the ultimate thing to him. It's what he worshiped. Now, Please understand, not all rich people are like that. There are are men I've known over the course of my life, many wealthy, very, very godly people. It's It's not the way it always is with rich people, but in this case, it is this man's ultimate thing. That's why he has no name. Wealth is his identity. And if you identify yourself by anything temporal in this world, when you take it away, what do you have left? nothing. So like if wealth is your ultimate thing and the economy crashes, you have no identity left. All you were was a rich man or a rich woman. If someone else's approval is your ultimate thing, like your identity might be, I don't know, Ryan's girlfriend or Todd's favorite employee or Sarah's best friend. I don't know. Take away Ryan, Todd, or Sarah and what do you have left? you have no identity left whatsoever. That's the point that Jesus is making here. Who or what you worship defines your identity in this life and as we will see in a moment in the next. Now, before we move on to the next thing that I want that, that Jesus wants us to see in this passage, I just want to make one point about interpreting this passage, because I realize there's a lot of stuff here that seems kind of odd. He, one guy went to Abraham's side, the other guy goes to hell. Is Abraham's side supposed to be heaven? What is that all about? Understand something. This is a parable. And so in a parable, you can't press all of the details as far as they can possibly go. So in other words, you can't can't look at this as an accurate description of exactly how heaven and hell work and what they look like. There are two things that you really can take about the next life here from this passage. And the reason you can do it is because Jesus confirms these things in many other places within, within the New Testament. One is that hell is a very real place. That's something that we can take away from this passage. And the other is that your eternal destiny, your eternal destination, once you're there, is permanent. It can't be changed. That's the chasm that's talked about in this particular passage. And again, that's confirmed in other places throughout the Scripture. Okay. But we don't want to press this further than we should. We want to get out of this what we need to get out of it, and what Jesus wants us to understand. But we don't want to take it further than we can, than, than we can take it. Now, here's the second thing that I think Jesus wants us to see in this passage. The first is that your identity, who or what you worship, defines your identity in this life or in the next. And then here's the second one. To the degree that you put anything or anyone before Christ, you begin to disintegrate. To the degree that you put anything or anyone before Christ, you begin to disintegrate integrate. Now watch what I mean. I want to look closely at the question that the rich man asks Abraham in verse 24. Okay? He calls to Abraham and he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Do you notice anything odd about this request? Is there anything you notice about this that just seems like really odd to you? Send Lazarus over here to relieve my thirst for a moment. I think there are a few things about this that are really, really telling. But one particular thing that is the most odd. Here's the first thing. That first, he knows Lazarus' name. Did you notice that? He he calls for him by name. During this guy's lifetime, as Lazarus sat outside uh, the gate of his place starving to death, the rich man knew him well enough to know his name, but still didn't do anything to help him. I mean, there's a cruelty to this man that is beyond the pale. Second thing I think is really important is he still regards Lazarus as one who is beneath him. Did you notice that? Throughout the last half of the parable, this man considers Lazarus to be just an errand boy. We'll see that in the in the verses to come. Still, he just looks at him as an errand boy, as a means to an end. There's an insanity about this. This man seems detached from reality. He's in hell. Lazarus is not, and he still sees Lazarus beneath him. Third, and this is the most important of all, I think. Did you notice that he's not asking to get out? Like, he's not asking to get out. Wouldn't that be the obvious question? Back in verse twenty-three, Jesus tells us that he's in hell. He's in torment by his own, by this guy's own admission. He says in verse twenty-four that he's in agony, but he's not asking to get out. Does that feel like insanity to you? Like how do you, how do you explain that? How do you explain that a guy who is in hell is not asking to get out? He thinks he can make requests. And he's not making the request to get out. Well, there's a really very interesting passage in another place in the New Testament. And it's in Colossians chapter 1. And this whole chapter in Colossians chapter 1 is is describing the idea that Christ is supreme in the universe. And the chapter reaches... A high point in this particular verse is in verse 17, and it says this. It says, he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the first part of that verse is saying that Jesus is more valuable, more fascinating, more worthy, more delightful, more meaningful, more supreme than anything or anyone else in In the entire universe, he defines life and reality. That's the first part of that verse. But the second part of the verse is the logical conclusion of the first part of the verse. If Jesus is reality, if he is supreme over everything, then he is also the one who integrates and sustains everything in the universe. Now, when it says that he holds all things together, there's a whole bunch of things that are included in all things that are outside of our scope today, but it certainly includes human personhood, like the integration of mind and body and soul. And so if Christ is the integrating factor of the universe, it makes perfect sense that to the degree that you put anything or anyone before Christ, you begin to disintegrate. Like your mind, body, and soul begin to disintegrate. You become detached from reality, mentally, psychologically. The deepest part of you becomes wrecked with pain and emptiness, ceases to find any compelling reason to exist other than to relieve the pain. The rich man throughout his life made money his supreme, ultimate thing. Wealth took the place of Christ, and as a result, during his life, did you notice this? He seems to have become less human over time. How hard of a heart would you have to have to see a man starving at the end of your driveway every single day, be so familiar with him that you know him by name, but not care? That seems insanely callous, inhumane. Where's the compassion? See, by putting wealth as his ultimate good thing, he's become less human, you see. He's disintegrating to the point that here he is in hell and instead of asking to get out of hell, instead of acknowledging that his priorities were all screwed up, here he is in agony just asking for a drop of water on his tongue which is insane because that's a short-term solution to a really long-term problem evangelical scholars um, have long debated about whether hell is really a a place of fire Now, now, now listen to me I want you to understand something There is no question that Jesus teaches here and in other places that hell is very, very real. I've said that many times this morning. I don't want you walking out of here thinking that I don't believe that hell exists. I very much do. But I side with those who see the fire as deeply symbolic of the eternal disintegration of souls. Because that's what fire does. If you've ever watched something, if you've ever watched a a log or something burn in a fire, it just disintegrates... Slowly but surely, it disintegrates. I think, that's what, I think that's what the fire is for. This man's disintegration began during his lifetime when he made money his ultimate good in life, and it reaches its zenith in hell to the point that he has become so disintegrated, so detached from reality, that he cannot want what he should want, which is out. Being with Christ seems much worse to him than just short-term relief of his agony. Now, does that sound crazy to you? Like, let me ask you something. Do 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 you think that's possible? Do you think it's possible that a person can disintegrate to the point that they can't want what they should want? Do you think that's possible? A few minutes ago, we started this talk with a video clip of a man when he was in the throes of an addiction, and then what he was like afterward. And as I was working through this passage, the similarities between the disintegration that comes from addiction and the disintegration of this rich man were striking. Think about it for a moment. For people with an addiction, the high of the substance, uh, the alcohol or the behavior, whatever it is, becomes the number one thing in their life. Like, that's the ultimate good thing. They can't imagine life without it. It becomes all-consuming, their ultimate goal. And so it was with the rich man and his wealth. That was number one. But at some point, as the addiction progresses... Life for the person with the addiction is no longer about the pleasure of the high. It becomes about fighting off the agony of the withdrawal. Life becomes a living hell for them, completely consumed with getting one more fix, one more hit, one more bite. And to anyone outside the addiction, this is clearly insane. What's one more hit? What's one more fix? It's a short-term solution to a recurring problem. Rather like a drop of cold water on your tongue when you're in hell, is it not? Sound very similar, don't they? Addiction also creates massive self-absorption and callousness. Like The body's dependence upon the substance makes the person with the addiction incapable of caring about the pain that they're causing the people uh, around them because their life is consumed with staving off their own pain. Much like the rich man in this parable doesn't care at all about the beggar at the end of his gate. Callousness, self-centeredness, absorption. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Even as a person with an addiction's body begins to disintegrate all around them, massive weight loss, teeth falling out, thinning hair, whatever, if you were to point out all of that to the person with the addiction, if you would point out to them how they're physically and psychologically disintegrating right in front of you, even though they may know they're miserable, even though they may know that they're mentally and physically disintegrating, if you bring up the idea of sobriety, they'll run. They've reached a point that sobriety sounds more like hell than the misery in which they're living. And that, of course, seems to be the point that this man is at. His misery is terrible, but he's not asking to get out. Just a drop of water, that'll do. He's so disintegrated at this point that he can't even want what he really should want. You see, I think if you want to see a glimpse of what hell is like, look at the disintegrating process of addiction in this life. But as you do, I want you to understand something. Because I don't want you to walk out of here and look down your nose at people who have some kind of addiction. I want you to understand something very clearly. Realize that the New Testament uses the language of addiction regarding anything that you put before Christ, no matter what it is. For instance, if you put your family's well-being before Christ, that will begin to enslave you. You'll become pathological about it. Your emotions surrounding your family's well-being will become intractable. Uh, Nathaniel uh, uh, Nathaniel Duckworth, our worship leader, also uh, umpires little, leagues, uh, little league baseball games and high school baseball games on the side. He's told me stories before about things that mom and dad, moms and dads have said at games when things don't go their kid's way. That literally, and I'm not, I'm not joking with you here, I'm, I'm, I mean it sincerely, that literally sound insane. Like, wait a minute, we're at a, li- we're at a kid's little league game. We're at a high school game. There's no money on this. You're kidding me about what you're saying right now? Are you serious? Coaches can tell you that. So what happens when you put your family's well-being before Christ. You begin to disintegrate. It controls you. Make winning your ultimate goal and you'll become pathological about that think lance armstrong make avoiding pain your ultimate goal and you will become racked with anxiety and painfully controlling to the people around you to the degree that you put anything or anyone before christ you begin to disintegrate mind body and soul you become less human you begin to fall apart mentally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. If you put anything before the one who holds everything together. Now one more thing that I want you to see in this parable. Besides the fact besides the fact that who or what you worship defines your identity in this life and the next. And besides the fact that to whatever extent you put something before Christ, you begin to disintegrate. Like to the point that you can't even want want what you should want? Here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. Verse 27 picks up. Just after Abraham has refused to send Lazarus to the rich man. Rich man answers, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Oh, just one, one thing real quickly. If you read the subtext of that, like that statement, what he's saying is I'm a victim. And by the way, that's very similar to the process of addiction too. Every person who struggles with an addiction will tell you that they're perfectly justified in their addiction. Anyway, let me move on. Abraham replied to him, they, ha- they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now make a note of this. This is really important that you make a note of this. It is possible... It is possible to become so disintegrated in this life that even a miracle won't get your attention. It is possible to become so disintegrated in this life that even a miracle won't get your attention. Did you see that last line? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. If you were to look at the uh, larger context of this parable, it's clear that the rich man in this parable represents the religious leaders in Israel, the ones who were responsible to teach Moses and the prophets. These religious leaders hated Jesus. Now, I told you earlier that there were two reasons Jesus chose the name Lazarus for the character in this parable. One reason was to let us know that he was a man who worshiped God as opposed to the uh, rich man. But there's a second reason, and the second reason was to validate this last line of the parable. Because not long after telling this story, Jesus actually did raise a man from the dead, a man whose name was, guess who? Lazarus. And when he raised Lazarus from the dead, did that spark a mass conversion among the religious leaders? No. In fact, they began to plot more seriously to kill Jesus. It's possible to become so disintegrated in this life that even a miracle won't get your attention. Some of you this morning have an enormous amount of confidence in your rationality. Like you're convinced that there's no God in the universe or if there is a God, there's no such place as hell. How do you know that you aren't so disintegrated that your perception of reality has become so distorted, so detached from reality that you can't see What's right in front of your eyes? How do you know that? How are you so confident about that? For those of you who are here this morning who just cannot believe that a good God would let people go to hell, let's go back to the very first thing that I said about Jesus' disposition toward hell earlier. He teaches that hell is real, teaches it here, teaches it in other places in the New Testament. You can't get away from that, but he also teaches that the only way you're going there is over my dead body. I want you to understand something. Without the reality of hell, you can't really know how much Christ loves you. Now think about that for just a moment. If you and I I were walking down the sidewalk and I see you start to walk off a curb because you're I don't know, you're looking at your phone or something. If I see you start walking off the curb and I say to you, I love you so much I'm going to save you from walking off the curb and I throw myself in front of you, well, that's nice. I mean, that's nice, right? It is. But imagine if I see you walking across the train tracks looking down at your phone about to get smacked by a train and at the last minute I throw you out of the way and I take your place and I get hit by the train. That says a great deal more, doesn't it? About how much I love you. On the cross, Jesus disintegrated, so that those who believe in Him don't have to experience hell. Do you realize that's what happened to Jesus on the cross? Like He came apart, and and uh, and He says He says that His soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. What's He saying? He's saying I'm coming apart. I feel myself disintegrating. On the cross, you can see the record in the Gospels how his his body was disintegrating there on the cross in the agony that he was in. And and, and then he cries out uh, in in a cry of of just unbelievable psychological agony, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Theologically, the Bible says that he became sin. The very thing that disintegrates us. He became sin for you and for me. He experienced all of the disintegration of sin so that you would never have to. And his death on the cross, he's saying, over my dead body. You'll have to trample over all that I've done for you on the cross to get to hell. You'll have to reject me. You'll have to reject the cross. You'll have to reject the message of the cross. You'll have to reject the reality of the cross. You'll have to reject my love for you to get there. And without the reality of hell, you would never know how much Christ loves you, how much he did to rescue you from it, what he endured to rescue you. And I would just like to ask you, would you respond to his love this morning? If you're here today and you've never done that, would you respond to his love this morning? Not fear. This isn't about fear. Jesus wants you to respond to his love this morning, all that he did for you to save you from this. Like Todd's mother and sister in the beginning of this video, Jesus is saying, wake up or I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. For those of you who have believed in Christ, And your eternal destiny is secure. The Bible says that. that Once you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your eternal destiny is secure. Like hell isn't a thing you have to deal with. But there are people all around you who need to hear about the love of Christ for them. And may I suggest that you create a list, I don't know, say three to five people for whom you pray on a regular basis that God would give you the opportunity to share Christ's love with And he would prepare their hearts to hear it because the stakes are so unbelievably high. Would you do that? Who or what you worship defines your identity in this life and the next? To the degree that you put anything, that you put anything before Christ or anyone before Christ, you begin to disintegrate And it is possible to disintegrate so much in this life that even a miracle won't get your attention. And so if in this moment Jesus has your attention, respond to it now. Respond to Him now. Respond to His love now. Because it's possible to become so callous, so disintegrated, so detached from reality, that even a miracle won't wake you up. Would you bow your heads with me? And Lord Jesus, uh, this is a very difficult subject to talk about. Very difficult subject for people to believe that a loving God would allow people to spend eternity apart from you in a place like hell. And yet what we see in this passage is that it's a place of justice. It's also a place where people would choose the, just a moment's relief rather than being with you in eternity. And Lord Jesus Christ, um, pray for those people in the room this morning that have never believed in you, that perhaps in this moment they would recognize the extent of your love for them all that you endured, the way that you disintegrated so that they would never have to. I pray that they would respond to that by just acknowledging that they're sinners and that there's only, there's only one way to avoid this ultimate extension of the reality of disintegration and that is through believing in you who are disintegrated on the cross for us. And then, Lord, for those of us who who have believed in you, I pray that uh, you would just give us a sense of urgency about sharing your love with the people that we know and love, the people who work with us, our neighbors, our friends, whoever, that we would just begin to pray for opportunities to speak with them because the stakes are so high. We thank you for this truth that you love us enough to tell us. We thank you that you love us so much. That you would say to us, it's only over my dead body that you will go there. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship today.